Can we screen more effectively for a lethal lung disease? Neurodegenerative disease among former rugby players. Does what mom eats either during pregnancy or during childbearing impact on the child's risk for obesity? And is replacing the oral glucose tolerance test with the hemoglobin A1C measurement for diagnosing diabetes justified? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I'm really interested because I think it has such incredibly profound public health implications in this notion of, should we look at hemoglobin A1C or oral glucose tolerance tests? In the journal Circulation, the time on our way to diagnose diabetes or pre-diabetes is with a glucose tolerance test. What happens is people take in an excess amount of glucose, we check their blood sugars over the subsequent couple hours, and if it's elevated, we can diagnose pre-diabetes, and this is done in a fasting state. And the whole reason for establishing whether someone has pre-diabetes or glucose intolerance is that it would put them at risk for not only diabetes, but also at risk for the complications, the microvascular being kidney disease and eye disease, the macrovascular complications being stroke and heart attack and kidney failure. They took individuals that had an abnormal glucose tolerance test, and they followed them over the course of the next four years to determine how many of those subsequently had an elevated hemoglobin A1C. And then they said, okay, for those people that have an abnormal oral glucose tolerance test and a normal hemoglobin A1C over the next four years, is there a risk of microvascular or macrovascular complications elevated, or is it the same as the general population? They took over 5,700 men and women from a population-based study, all with abnormal oral glucose tolerance test, approximately 60% had an abnormal hemoglobin A1C, and they had an elevated risk of these complications that I mentioned. But those that didn't have an elevated hemoglobin A1C had the same complication risk as the general population that did not have prediabetes. What that suggests to me and to the authors is we don't really need to do the oral glucose tolerance test. We're going to target it towards those that have an elevated hemoglobin A1C. It's justifiable to use that to replace an oral glucose tolerance test in evaluating people with possible diabetes. This is, of course, an extremely important conclusion to come to. This is, let us mention, part of this Whitehall 2 cohort study. Having an HbA1c drawn, at least as far as I'm concerned, is a good deal easier than having an oral glucose tolerance test. Absolutely. I mean, it's a single test. It doesn't have to be done in a fasting state. It doesn't require multiple blood samples. It's easier to perform for both the lab and also for the individual as well. So I think this is a really important study in that regard. Let's turn from here then to nature medicine. And this is something that I selected because I've had the experience of being with patients who have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a really very dreadful lung disease that's associated with a mean survival time of less than five years. And this is a screening model that they developed using comorbidity signatures in electronic health records. Looking at idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis just for a second, it turns out that most people spend years getting a proper diagnosis. That's because it's got symptoms that initially present that are very nonspecific. It really requires a high-resolution computed tomography scan of the chest, most often done by an expert so that they can identify it. And there's a presentation of usual interstitial pneumonia. That's the hallmark of it. But this usually takes place 
years after somebody has been moving into frank manifestation of the condition. These nonspecific symptoms I mentioned are this progressive chronic exertional dyspnea and or chronic and often a mild cough. And when we look at risk factors, those include older age, male sex, and cigarette smoking. But boy, those could point to a bunch of other stuff. So it's a difficult diagnosis to make, but it turns out, of course, that it's really also lethal. What these folks did was they developed something that they call the zero burden comorbidity risk score for IPF. It's so-called Z-Core-IPF, to predict a future risk of a diagnosis. They looked at three independent databases for a total of almost 3 million participants, and they had over 54,000 positive cases who had been diagnosed with IPF. What they were able to show is that they had a really impressive specificity. They were also really good at finding this condition one and four years before a conventional diagnosis could be made. And this was using data that was already in somebody's electronic health record. So to me, it seems like a pretty powerful tool. And you're aware that my father passed away with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And as, as you said, it took about a year and a half to establish the diagnosis. What these investigators did was they used existing medical records, existing diagnosis to increase the predictive value. And these, what are called comorbidity signatures, increase the risk that the person had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis by 30-fold. This diagnosis is pretty rare. Less than 2% of the population will ever develop IPF. You diagnose it earlier, we have some newer treatments that are available, some antifibrotic therapy. Ultimately, lung transplantation is the only cure, and you want to establish those patients on the transplant list early rather than late because it takes years to get lungs. The really neat thing about this is this new tool you can deploy it universally. There's a near-zero drain on the healthcare resources. It's non-invasive. It's nearly instantaneous. It's using our information that we currently have and properly modeled to identify these individuals at higher risk. Right. So let's just review then that past respiratory diseases or disorders maximally contribute to the risk for IPF. And that's followed by suspected related comorbidities, metabolic diseases, cardiovascular abnormalities, and interestingly, diseases of the eye. And it also turns out that infections are an important comorbidity or the history of them. Over 51 different things that contribute to the diagnosis. So let's hope that this gets deployed all over the place really soon so that people can get an earlier diagnosis. Let's turn then to your second one. It's in the BMJ Journal of Neurologic Neurosurgery and Psychiatry. I think it's the first time we've reported from this particular journal. It's looking at the neurodegenerative disease risk among former international rugby union players. There's been a lot of interest, and even recently in the NFL, on traumatic brain injury and how that contributes to CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and to dementia and to early death. But you know, rugby until recently has been an amateur sport, Elizabeth, and it wasn't professional until 1995. But it's obviously it's a high contact sport with a lot of tackling. There was some concern that even at the amateur level, rugby players could be at an increased risk of having neurodegenerative disorders. To evaluate that, these investigators did a retrospective cohort study looking at national electronic records, looking at death, hospitalization, and dispense prescriptions for a total of 412 male Scottish former international rugby union players matched to 1,200 people that didn't play rugby. 
and they followed them over a course of 32 years. And what they discovered was that the former rugby players didn't die at a higher rate than the normal population, but they were much more likely to develop a neurodegenerative disorder, about twice as likely. And it happened usually later in life. And they broke that down, of course, into different forms of neurodegenerative disorders, dementia, and then motor neuron disease. And Parkinson's as well. Their increased risk of dementia, about twice the general population. For Parkinson's disease, about threefold. And for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, or motor neuron disease, about 15 times higher, by the way, than the general population. And so what the authors are saying is that like individuals are doing in the other sports to try to decrease the amount of contact, not only in games, but a lot of it happens in practice, either by changing technique, changing the rules of the game, or using better equipment. Yeah. Do rugby players use helmets? And this, of course, also begs the question about soccer players. Right. Typically, rugby players do not use helmets. It's interesting when they looked at who was being injured, at least half of the individuals is not the person being tackled, it's the tackler. Their point is, okay, if that's going to happen, it invariably happens during games. Let's try to minimize it during practice because we spend much more time in practice than we do in actual games. And I think we've seen that also before, haven't we? The relationship between CTE and actually the amount of tackling and head injury that takes place during practice. Yeah, now they weren't able to demonstrate that within this particular study, but they have, for example, in football, in American football. Okay, protect your head. You need it. Finally, on to the BMJ. This is a look at maternal consumption of ultra-processed foods and the subsequent risk of offspring overweight or obesity. In some respects, this is sort of a not surprising kind of a study for me. And I would also say that, boy, it sure looks like we're increasingly fingering ultra-processed foods as our latest dietary Darth Vader. Would you agree? Yeah, it's certainly been in the news. When we talk about ultra-processed foods, we're talking about products like bacon, Coca-Cola, energy bars, even ice cream. These are foods that have undergone intensive industrial processing. Yeah. So they used data from the nurse's health study and a study I was not familiar with called the Growing Up Today study, abbreviated GUTS. And there's GUTS 1 and GUTS 2 in the United States. They had almost 20,000 mother-child pairs with a median follow-up of four years or until age 18 or the onset of overweight or obesity. And they had a subsample of just shy of 3,000 mother-child pairs where there was information on the peri-pregnancy diet. 12.4% of the offspring developed overweight or obesity. They looked at maternal consumption of ultra-processed foods, both around the time of pregnancy and then during the child-rearing period. And they found that maternal consumption of ultra-processed foods during the child-rearing period was associated with overweight or obesity with a 26% higher risk in the group with the highest maternal consumption of these foods. Interestingly, the peri-pregnancy ultra-processed food intake was not significantly associated with an increased risk for the offspring. And to me, that suggests that the plausible explanation is, gosh, if the parents aren't eating healthy foods during the child-rearing period, the child's not going to eat healthy food. I mean, the child doesn't go to the store and pick up the fresh fruits and vegetables. The child eats whatever the parents give it. They eat the same thing as the parents eat. If the peri-pregnancy period affected it only, the mother eating ultra-processed food, you could say, well, there's inflammation and epigenetic changes, and that carries over. What that tells me is that I know we're spending a lot of time educating kids in school about eating healthy, and it's incredibly important, but that message needs to make it home. 
they note in their results that the consumption of ultra processed foods among almost 15,000 of these mothers in their cohort actually slightly decreased since 1991. And it suggests that, oh gosh, it's just the rest of those who account for this increased risk of obesity. And then also when we're looking at these foods, it turns out that it's the breakfast foods largely that seem to be a particular issue. This is an issue, again, we face not just in our schools, we need to face in our homes as well. It's what you eat, folks. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.